Hey everybody, this is James Kent. Welcome to Dose Nation. Welcome back to Dose Nation. This is episode 4 of 10 in our limited 10 episode series that's closing out Dose Nation, bringing it to an end. And in these episodes, we're talking about the darker side of psychedelics and psychedelic philosophy, psychedelic culture, and so on. Uh, That intro music, Veteran of the Psychic Wars by Blue Oyster Cult one of the only cults I've ever been a member of since, oh, probably the late 70s. I was a child of the 70s. Blue Oyster Cult was big back then. I love that song. I love this album, Fire of Unknown Origin. This is one of the lesser-known tracks. It was in the heavy metal soundtrack, the movie Heavy Metal, Veteran of the Psychic Wars. Um, Listening to that as a child, uh, I always thought that it was a very uh, cool song, uh, a song about, a, I don't know, a veteran, an old soldier maybe, who had uh, gone through a lot of psychic manipulation or psychic warfare, looking back at his life and realizing that all the psychic warfare had finally taken its toll and he was nothing but a burnt out shell of his former self. Uh, veteran of the Psychic Wars, possibly the unofficial soundtrack for these last ten episodes. I personally don't see myself as a burnt-out husk of what I once was, but I do sort of feel like a veteran of some psychic warfare. Getting into the field of psychedelics, there was lots of things I never imagined that I would be dealing with, that I was thrust into and forced to deal with. Because back in 1993, I made a big decision. I decided that I was going to spend a chunk of my life studying psychedelics and trying to figure out what made them work. Because all of the research I had been doing, all of the books I had been reading, all the people I had been talking to, I realized that nobody had any idea what they were talking about. And I'll get more into that later. But at that period of time, I was looking at graduate schools. I was trying to figure out where I could go to study psychedelics. But because of prohibition, there was really no place to go. There were, you know, I could have gone into psychopharmacology or I could have gone into neuroscience. I could have gotten a medical degree, but I had just graduated as an undergraduate with a degree in professional writing and a minor in sociology and anthropology. I was not ready to go into a scientific graduate program, so there was a lot of soul-searching at the time. There was no legitimate place to do psychedelic research, so I decided that the only way for me to tackle this problem of figuring out how they worked, I would need to do it on my own. 
And because psychedelics were illegal, I would have to find all the substances myself. I would have to do all the research on myself. I would have to pull my friends and acquaintances and people I met into these experiments and experiences to see what they thought. But it all had to be totally underground. I didn't have an academic lab. I didn't have an advisor or a department head or someone showing me which direction to go. I was, I was pretty much on my own. And there, is, there were lots of hurdles I never expected that I would have to cross. The first one is that there is a cost of doing research. Not just, you know, finding the drugs and getting the drugs. That's, of course, a cost, a small cost. But there's travel, there's legwork. If you want to do research on scientific publications and you're not a member of a university, finding access to those scientific publications is very hard. Sometimes you have to pay hundreds of dollars just to get a copy of an article from a scientific journal, from a peer-reviewed journal. If you're not an academic, if you're just an outsider doing research on your own, they want you to pay hundreds of dollars for subscriptions to these journals just to get the, the, the limited research that there was. So there was books, there's papers, there's publishing, there's travel, there's making donations to psychedelic groups, there's being a consumer of psychedelic products, um, going to events, trying to meet people, networking, putting together personal projects like a journal or a magazine that would draw people to me so that I could use their resources and their information. Uh, it, there was a very large monetary cost that I never expected to be taking on. It's probably not as much as I would have spent on a graduate degree in neuroscience, for instance. But I did a little number crunching, and I f think that over the years, I have invested thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even over $100,000 in doing personal psychedelic research. Um, I've made some of that money back on writing and publishing, publishing magazines, publishing books, but really just a fraction of everything else that I spent going down this road where I was just going to be a do-it-yourself researcher and fund myself and basically take on the burden all by myself. And I never expected psychedelics or psychedelic research to be my career. I never expected it to be my job. So the entire time that I was studying psychedelics, all these years that I was publishing magazines and networking and going to events and, and everything that I was doing, I would typically also have a day job where I was making the money that I would need to finance this adventure. And this is kind of a typical thing for people in the psychedelic community. Many people are self-funded. They're not doing it for the money. Uh, some people are definitely doing it for the money, but many people are doing it for a sense of serving the larger community 
or they're doing it for uh, some kind of spiritual purpose. They're approaching some sort of spiritual goal that they feel is is more important than, say, their regular life. Some people are just out there doing it for the drugs. I mean, I think early on in my foray into the psychedelic community, one of the main reasons I was out there networking and meeting people was so that I could find specific substances that I was interesting in do, interested in doing research on. And that's maybe a fancy way of saying I wanted to do a lot of different drugs. So I went to where the drugs were. But it wasn't just that I wanted to do the drugs because they felt good or I liked them or they were interesting. I wanted to do them because I felt the only way to figure out how they worked was to take them, pay very close attention, and see really what's going on. I, I wanted to know how they worked. And maybe I was a little naive at the time, thinking that my mental capacity was as strong or my academic knowledge was as complete as it needed to be for me to sort these things out. Because I found out from firsthand experience interviewing people who were luminaries in the field that these people did not have the intellectual tools that they needed to, to grapple with what was going on. And so in a lot of cases, people fell back not on pharmacology or neuroscience or chemistry or any of the hard sciences. Instead, people who were talking about psychedelics were talking about mystical, spiritual, social theory, kind of very soft cultural explanations that sort of veered into the Jungian, the transpersonal, and uh, the New Age. And uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that here. Um, because when I first went to interview Terrence, Terrence was the pers first person that I went to interview. And it's hard for me to explain to people who weren't there in 1993 on the West Coast of the United States just how big the New Age movement was. It was this new retail spirituality that all of these liberal hippie type people were exploring and getting into this idea of the new age and uh, I did a lot of research on the new age and where the new age came from because my journey into the psychedelic space started with me having to navigate all of this disinformation out there about the New Age, coming from the New Age community. And I, I call it disinformation because, in retrospect, a lot of the things that I was up against and, and trying to parse out of the nexus between psychedelics and the New Age community were complete fabrications. They were complete fabrications and misconstructions of reality that were sold to the psychedelic community as a form of neo-spirituality or a, a way of understanding what was going on in the mind, the deeper levels of the mind, I say in quotes, or the higher parts of the mind, or our expanded consciousness, quote unquote. And 
it's sort of a daunting thing to step through when you're in your mid-20s and you haven't really been exposed to a lot of cultish ideology or ideologies really that go beyond the typical Judeo-Christian, democratic, nationalistic ideologies that are most widely available in the United States and that I had been mainly exposed to. I had studied world religions. I was very, by this time, I had already figured out that most world religions were shams. They're shell games that pulled people in and offered them what I called the invisible carrot. The invisible carrot is the magical reward that you get at the end of a lifetime of discipline within your specific religion, whether that be enlightenment, whether that be reincarnation, whether that is uh, you know, the salvation of your soul and going to heaven. These are all invisible things that don't exist in the real world that are offered as the prizes for spiritual devotion. Here is your prize, an invisible thing that doesn't exist that you cannot use anywhere. But nevertheless, spend your life going after this invisible carrot because, oh boy, won't that invisible carrot taste so good after you're dead or whatever. That's, to me, how I parsed world religions. Uh, it's all about fooling people into chasing the invisible carrot. And I wasn't interested in the invisible carrot. I wanted instantaneous spiritual reality. I wanted to touch the mystical. I wanted it to be quick. I wanted to get in there and sort out what was going on and then be done with it. I know, it. in retrospect, it maybe it sounds a little bit naive, uh, but I had a clear vision of what I was doing and I had a commitment. I decided that I would commit five to ten years to sorting this problem out. I, was, I knew I was a smart person. It's not that you know people were walking around telling me I was smart all the time. But I would generally be able to figure out how things work just by looking at them. And I would test very high when it came to things like systems analysis and uh, comprehension of complex systems, something that I was always very good at. I could just kind of look at a radio or look at a TV and open it up and figure out how it worked. You know, my, my parents were constantly frustrated with me. Uh, I was always taking things apart. I was always anything technological in the house. I would just take it apart. The telephone, the TV, the radio, the stove, the refrigerator, um, a pocket calculator, an adding machine, uh, basically anything that I couldn't figure out how it worked just by, by punching the buttons, I would take it apart. And then once I figured out, oh, this wire goes here, this wire goes here, it goes to this circuit board, it attaches to this capacitor, oh, okay, I'm, I'm getting it, I'm getting it. I knew that that, that sort of reverse engineering was something that I could do. And I really wasn't doing anything <laughs> that wonderful with my life at the time. So I decided that, yeah, okay, I'm going to spend five to 10 years knuckling down and doing the hard research and basically figuring out how this psychedelic thing works. Not just for me, but as a favor to the community, because again, naively, I figured once people figure out how these things work, a lot of this other cloudy, soft, cultural, spiritual, mystical BS will fall by the wayside because people will realize that this is just the window dressing on what's actually going on 
inside, in the guts. Now, having said all that, I am not immune to a fanciful notion or an idea that may seem worth pursuing because of its alluring nature. Uh, and that's what a lot of the ideas in the New Age represented to me. They were the possibilities of something out there that required further exploration because of their crossover with psychedelics and altered states. And I have a big list here of things that I actually had to dig through, had to go through. And I'm going to take a couple minutes here to, to run down the list because it's a huge list. And if you just kind of look at the new age or the middle of the 20th century and say, oh yeah, there was a lot of experimentation with the mind going on back then, it doesn't really capture the, the levels and layers of disinformation that a person in that milieu had to wade through. So here we go. I'm going to start off on this list and uh, maybe take aside as I go through it, but it's, it's a long list. So I'm going to start with 20th century psychic warfare, disinformation and propaganda in the new age and alternative spirituality movements. It's what I call disinformation in the spiritual arts down the rabbit hole. And if you're talking about the 20th century, you have to start with Aleister Crowley and uh, the Golden Dawn and the Ordo Templi Orientis, the OTO. He's the, I think, the grandfather of disinformation and really kind of one of the nexus points of where all of this stuff generates into our, our modern culture. So you start with Crowley, who pulled from Orientalism. He picked many elements from Eastern philosophies like Buddhism and Hin Hinduism and ancient Egypt. There was seances and crystal balls, this sort of Eastern European gypsy spirituality that was also woven into it, the, the Theosophical Society, mediums, spirit channeling, tarot cards, Nordic runes, fortune-telling, psychic readings, astrology. Astrology was a very big one, and we're going to come back to astrology maybe a couple times in this episode, and then, and then hopefully we can put it aside. But I can't tell you how big astrology was and how much astrology I had to rub up against in, in, in this field. Um, continuing on, psychic readings, telepathy, telekinesis, ESP, clairvoyance, lucid dreamings, psychedelics, hallucinogens, and altered consciousness, transcendental meditation, the whole notion of transcendence, Jungian psychology, reincarnation, past life regression, astral travel, remote viewing, auras, out-of-body experiences, the occult, voodoo, alchemy, esotericism, Christian mysticism, gnosis, Sufism and Islamic mysticism, sacred geometry, numerology, Kabbalah, pyramid power, crypto-Egyptology, Satanism, crystals, chakras, energy healing, alien channeling, ancient astronauts, UFO sightings, alien abductions, 
gray alien conspiracies, black helicopters, cattle mutilations, men in black, reptilian aliens, the Illuminati, crop circles, ley lines, cryptids, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, Carlos Castaneda, shamanism, paganism, Wicca, yoga, hypnosis, brainwashing, neurolinguistic programming, electromagnetic brain stimulation, binaural beat entrainment, paranormal psychology, MK Ultra, Project Superman, the Church of the Subgenius, HP Lovecraft, Dungeons and Dragons, Tolkien, Black Magic, Free Energy, the Tesla Archives, Alternative Healing, Chinese Medicine, Transpersonal Psychology, and Philosophy of Mind. Okay, that is a big, long list of subjects that somehow intersected with everything that I was studying. And for the most part, with, with a few exceptions, all of the things that I mentioned in this list are fantasy. They are completely fantastical. Some of them actually exist. Some of them actually exist. But the claims made regarding these spiritual arts or arts or, uh, or fantastical narratives are, are, are generally mythical. They're false. Uh, uh, and, and, and getting to that realization, picking through the stuff that's just absolutely phony and fake and false, and what parts of it in the middle are actually true and useful, that's, that's the hard part. And that's why I called this episode Psychic Warfare, is because within this battle for the mind that happened, that started in the 20th century, it started way before that, but it became extremely diversified and extremely technical in the 20th century. Before the 20th century, you just had a few competing world religions that sought to dominate all thought. And every time you had somebody challenge that thought, they would either be crushed or they'd have to start their own faction of a pre-existing religion, a cult, or a splinter group. In the 20th century, that all changed. Maybe it was because of access to information or just uh, the world becoming smaller. Suddenly, instead of just a few large world religions that people had to choose from, there was this whole cornucopia of paranormal and underground and occult spiritualities that people suddenly had access to. And so you got things like cults, Scientology, Moonies, Est, uh, personal empowerment cults, pow- cults that you know, would promise to make you a master. And a lot of these cults, they would pick one or two things out of this list that, that I just read, like astrology and alien channeling, or spirit channeling and crypto, crypto-Egyptology, or esotericism and gnosis and auras. And they would just, you know, say, oh, we like these new spiritual ideas. We're going to put them together and tell everybody that if they just come and join our cult and they follow our discipline and our spiritual practices, they too will become masters and they will gain the ability to be clairvoyant or telepathic or see auras or whatever it is that they are promising. Invisible carrots, again, another invisible carrot. And it's hard for me to explain 
just how many books there were out there on on stuff like this. They still all exist, of course, but back at back in those days, back in the early 90s, the new age book publishing market was huge. New age bookstores popped up in every community. And there would be books on everything from lucid dreaming to summoning and binding demons, right? Everything in the middle from, you know, the most benign kind of spiritual yoga to the craziest kind of chaos magic that, you know, people needed to sort through, people needed to sift through, people who were looking at spiritual arts as a legitimate way to expand your consciousness had to dig through all of this. And there was a, an obsession with what I call detachment philosophy about spirituality became a means for detaching your soul from your body. And almost every article I read in every New Age magazine was about the body-mind split or the body-mind-soul split. People wanted to separate the body and the mind into two different things, or they wanted to separate the body and the mind and the soul into three separate things, so that the mind, if it wanted to, could just wander away from the body. It could just astral travel. And this was the invisible carrot of transcendence. Yeah, if you meditate or you do yoga or you do these breathing exercises, if you learn these spiritual practices, if you're really, really disciplined, one day you too will be able to transcend your body. You'll be able to lift right out of your body and, and walk around like a spirit ghost. And, you know, that that's kind of fascinating, you know? When, when people talk about, oh yeah, we found a way to prove the mind-body split or the mind-body-soul split where you can actually have your spirit or your consciousness rise up out of your body and walk around the room while you're lying there. That was, that was pretty powerful. And a lot of people were drawn into it. And it's had many, many different names over the years, like astral travel or remote viewing or out-of-body experiences. Um, lucid dreaming sometimes crosses over into this territory, although I don't know if lucid dreaming explicitly promises that you're actually going to leave your body. Maybe it just says you have the sensation of leaving your body. But there are a stack, a mountain of different books out there promising how you, if you just follow these spiritual exercises, will be able to just up and leave your body anytime you want to and go wander around in the dream time and, and have adventures and then come back into your body when you're ready. Now, these are powerful ideas, not just to the common person, but apparently they were powerful enough to cause governments around the world to take some of these claims seriously. We all know that Russia and the United States during the Cold War in the late 50s and early 60s started programs to experiment with the psychic capacities of the human mind. And we have Project MKUltra here. Uh, I know that there's a Russian counterpart to that where people were training psychic super soldiers who could remote view or astral travel across enemy lines and see where enemy tank installations were, for instance, 
or people using their mind could manipulate the thoughts of other world leaders. Or maybe, if you take it all the way to the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats, maybe if you're just so skilled psychically and telepathically that you could stare into a person's eyes and use telepathy to actually make their heart stop and kill them. Be a silent assassin, killing without a bullet, killing just with your mind. And I know this, this sounds absurd and ludicrous now, but the disinformation of, of those claims was so powerful that, of course, governments had to spend money investigating to see if any of this were true. Now, I'm sure there are people out there that will tell you that, oh, yeah, the government, they did these experiments and they found out all about psychic warfare and telepathy and telekinesis, and they had to shut it down because it was too powerful. And all of the results have been hidden, and they're top secret, and we, we can't see them anymore because the, 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 the general public cannot have access to telepathy. But that's, uh, that's just not true. The government found that none of it worked. It was all a crock. The human mind never leaves the skull. It, it's, it cannot. It's impossible for it to do that. The cult of transcendence was, was sold a lie. And so in the, in the mid-70s or so, all of these programs were shut down. Maybe some of them continued on in, in a smaller fashion. I know that remote viewing was popular maybe until the mid-80s. But none of them really have any basis in reality. Uh, reality, the laws of physics, of course, say that all of these things are ridiculous. They're not possible. And anybody from a physical sciences background looking at the claims of astral travel and remote viewing and all of this stuff would say, yeah, of course it's ridiculous. And then you ask somebody, well, what about telepathy? And they'll go, well, I don't know, because sometimes I get strange feelings. Sometimes I get clairvoyant feelings. Sometimes I feel like someone that I know is in trouble, and the next day I'll find out that they had an accident. So maybe telepathy exists, even in smart people, even in educated people, even in people who have a strong background in the physical sciences, can get spun around by telepathy. Because in everybody's personal life, either they've had an experience where they have some sort of coincidental telepathic feeling about something that's going on in the world, or they know somebody or they've met somebody who has some kind of telepathic gift. So they can just guess the name of someone in your family or guess something that you've gone through in the past just by meeting at you and talking to you, like this sort of subtle psychic vibrations. Now, I don't give any credence to any of that. I mean, every time somebody comes to me with telepathy, and it happens often, I mean, because of the field I'm in, every so often, a couple times a year, somebody either from the underground or somebody from a legit academic institution will write to me and ask me whether, I not, whether or not I think telepathy is possible and whether or not specifically magic mushrooms have something to do with telepathy. And I hear that over and over and over and over again. It's the myth that never dies. 
And, you know, like I said, I've studied this for 25 years, and every time someone comes to me with these claims of telepathy, I get back into it. I get pulled back into it going, well, what if there is this special case or this weird wormhole or this, this quantum correlation that that happens? And every time I get pulled into it, I spend a few days or a week mulling it over, and then it comes back, mm, no, no, I guess not. It's all, <laughs> none of it works. And that's kind of the conclusion that I've reached, and none of it works. And it's not just my conclusion, it's the conclusion that a lot of people have reached. And there are stories out there about people who can come out of the paranormal psychology world. Paranormal psychology was much bigger back in the 70s and 80s than it is today. But there were people who came out of the paranormal psychology world thinking, yes, the time is right. Time is ripe. Now I'm going to investigate these claims, these phenomena, and actually legitimize them. I'm going to legitimize them and I'm going to show the world that telepathy actually exists. And so they move from the world of paranormal psychology into the world of research science and they set up all of these double-blind experiments about seeing if somebody can read the mind of somebody in the other room, or maybe they need to be bonded pairs, maybe they need to be marital partners, maybe they need to be, you know, identical twins, maybe it needs to be a mother-daughter bond. All of these things have been tested to see if, if the, any kind of telepathic communication is there at all. And the answer appears to be no. Now, with a few minor exceptions, um, some studies that maybe have not been able to be replicated show that there, you know, there might be a tiny bit of subconscious contact between people, but uh, nothing that would rise to the level of pure telepathy or pure brain-to-brain -brain contact across space. And I know there are people out there that would quibble with me, and they'll probably write me, and they'll probably show me the studies that I've already looked at and gone through dozens of times before and come back to the same conclusion. But what I'm saying is that this notion is so powerful and so alluring that even though time after time I look at it and come to it and consider it and then come to the conclusion that there's nothing there, all it takes is somebody with a new angle into it to get me to reconsider again. And I don't consider that necessarily to be a mental weakness on my part. I just want to be thorough because the, the, the idea never seems to die. The idea never seems to die that there is, that telepathic communication is possible and that maybe mushrooms or psychedelics aid in making that telepathic contact. And there are tons of anecdotal reports of people being on mushrooms in a group of people and sitting in a circle and suddenly realizing, just looking at each other, looking at each other's faces, they realize that they're all thinking the same thing. And maybe they've stopped talking out loud and suddenly they're talking to each other in their own heads and they're, they have a, they're having a telepathic link. Now, these, these moments usually only last a second or two before someone opens their mouth and says, are we speaking telepathically? And everybody goes, yeah. And then they laugh and they, they, they say, that's crazy, that's crazy. And then it kind of disappears. So it's not something that you can ever really recreate in a laboratory setting. And it makes you question 
well, were they really having a telepathic conversation or did everybody just get quiet at the same time and then start thinking that they were having a telepathic conversation? Because, of course, they were all high on drugs. And that, to me, seems to be a more realistic case than saying that, well, all you have to do is obliterate the brain's serotonin system with a massive disruption and suddenly it becomes telepathic. That, that just does not make sense to me. And that's what somebody who's arguing for mushroom telepathy is basically arguing. If you put in a hallucinogen that disrupts the serotonin system and causes the brain to, to, to scatter out into these, these sort of open-ended pieces, suddenly you're telepathic. Well, no. Maybe you can be a little bit more receptive to people's emotions, people's vibes. There's this whole lexicon of psychic activity that gets put into the psychedelic experience like I could read your vibes or I could see your aura or we were totally in sync our minds had totally synced up and you hear that a lot people say that when you even the Beatles said this this was in one of the the, the articles that I read about the Beatles when they started dropping acid in 1965 there was um a period where they were on acid at this hotel swimming pool, I think, maybe, or a private swimming pool, and a reporter showed up to see what the Beatles were doing and asked them some questions, and apparently all the Beatles had to do was just kind of look at each other, and they all realized that none of them wanted this person there, and that they were all thinking the same thing. I wouldn't call that a telepathic connection. I would just call that heightened awareness of people's feelings. Maybe heightened empathy would be a better way to put it than telepathy. And I, I, per, I, I, I'm fully willing to agree that maybe you do have a better understanding of what people are thinking when you're on psychedelics because your own barriers are down or your own emotional analysis is pushed way up high. But that doesn't mean that you're getting an accurate reading from somebody. You may see somebody and think that you're getting one vibe off of them, but it could be completely incorrect. There is really no way to test these things, especially in uncontrolled settings. And when you put them into a laboratory setting and try to make a study that's complete and double-blind and controlled, all of these potentials, these psychic potentials, disappear. I mean, they don't disappear, but they go down to statistically insignificant, um, what we would call no greater than random chance, or only such a small percentage higher than random chance that it's statistically insignificant. And that's what, it's, that's what it all comes down to. It's not that this stuff isn't real. It's not that it doesn't work. It's just that if it does work, the effects of it working, or the likelihood of it working, or the ability for it to actually transfer information from one brain to another is statistically insignificant. And the reason I say that is because if humans had a honed sense of telepathy, we would not need phones, we would not need cell phones, we would not need telegraphs. This telepathic communication would have shown itself earlier in our development. We would have figured it out by now, and we would be talking telepathy. So the fact that it does not exist in our daily lives 
as something that comes naturally to us, like walking or talking, leads me to believe that it doesn't exist and it can't exist. Because if it could exist, it would exist and we would be using it right now. Now that, that may be naive. I'm sure I can get into argument with a lot of people about that conclusion. But if you're a Dose Nation person, it's probably because you don't really have a lot of faith in the New Age movement or in the psychic community as having any basis in reality at all. And there are factions of the psychedelic community where all they do is sell these notions of New Age transcendence. Um, Reality Sandwich, for instance, could easily change the name of its blog to Invisible Carrot, and it would be the same thing. Because all they sell is Invisible Carrots. And, you know, people are hungry for Invisible Carrots, so they go there looking for the spiritual reward at the end of their journey. And I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the allure of this movement is. I just try to analyze why this movement is so powerful. And my general sense is that people really want consumer spirituality. They want to be able to go to the spirit store, the New Age bookstore, and shop for their spiritual beliefs. People want the instant gratification of immediate transcendence, what I call lunch break transcendence, where you work a nine to five job, but on your lunch break, you go and sit in the park and meditate and and transcend your life. And people who are looking for that sort of retail level spirituality are, are willing to be led down the garden path and be fed a lot of disinformation that doesn't really have anything to do with reality. As long as they feel the promise that they will be spiritually fulfilled by the journey itself or at the end of the journey. Um, I always saw the New Age movement as very ideologically fluid. Somebody who commits to transcendental meditation doesn't need to be sworn into an order, doesn't need to join a church, and they can just sort of pick it up ad hoc whenever they feel like it. And if it's not working for them, they could then just drop it. There is no commitment to the religion. There is no commitment to the ideology. It's just, uh, I'll try this for a little while, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. Or the real commitment to the ideology is saying, oh, I'm going to try this transcendental meditation, and then after a couple sessions, I'm going to start selling everybody I know on the fact that this transcendental meditation is the best thing that ever happened to me. And then by getting more people involved in TM, and letting them see for themselves what a great breakthrough that they're going to have, that will be my spiritual fulfilling moment, my invisible carrot of introducing something new to other people. And I think there's a big element of that going on. Somebody says, oh, I found this new thing that we can do that's quote-unquote spiritual. And somebody says, well, what is it? And they say, we sit silently for an hour and don't talk to each other. We just sit silently in a room and close our eyes and meditate. And it's the most amazing thing in the world. And if you think about it, 
at face level, the new spiritual hype is sitting still and doing nothing and being silent. Sounds pretty radical to me. Now, at the end of the last episode, I gave Albert Hoffman a hard time for his chapter, this last chapter in his LSD, My Problem Child book, where he tries to make the case for LSD as a, as a spiritual drug, a sacred drug. But he does so with the caveat that it needs to be done in combination with focused meditation. And when you, when you parse all of that language, you say, oh yeah, yeah, focused meditation and psychedelic drugs, they, yeah, there's, there, is, there is transcendence there. There is a sacred thing going on there. There is something mystical going on there. But what they're saying is LSD is a drug that's best used while you're sitting quietly with your eyes closed doing nothing, right? And I'm sure a lot of you out there would be going, meditation isn't doing nothing. There's a lot of stuff going on in meditation on the inside. Yes, but from the outside, from society looking at the person on LSD. Society is far more comfortable with the person sitting on the floor silently doing nothing than they are with somebody who's running down the street naked claiming that they're the second coming of Jesus or a person at a rave high out of their mind dancing with glow sticks. Society doesn't know what to do with those people. So society is, is afraid of the people who take psychedelics and dress in freaky day glow clothes and grow their hair long and decide to give the middle finger to your, your conformist society. Society doesn't, doesn't like that kind of behavior on LSD. But if all you want to do is take LSD and sit silently in one place for a few hours, oh, that's fine. Go for it. <laughs> so I... I can't help but see not only the hypocrisy, but the short-sightedness of, of the claims that people make when they say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you, you, you do, do psychedelics in concert with meditation and yoga, and it's, it's, and it's a spiritual thing. And it's like, well, okay, so basically what you're saying is keep it to yourself. Don't interfere with the rest of culture. Just do the drug, go deeper into your own head, and shut your mouth, and be quiet about it. And don't move around too much, because you might get in trouble. These are all red flags to me. And you hear it over and over and over, not only in the psychedelic community, but in the spiritual community at large. They'll start off by telling you, oh, the world is in crisis. Things are going crazy Everybody's feeling alienated by industrialization or oppression or whatever. And the only way to break through this, impression, this oppression and alienation and solve this global crisis is to sit still and close your eyes and be quiet and meditate. And then you too can find transcendence. And then the end, problem solved. <laughs> okay, now that might sound like a very big oversimplification of, of spiritual practice in the 20th century, 
But from my point of view, that's what I see. That's what I see. I don't see any change happening. I don't see anybody touching their higher selves. I don't see anybody transcending. I just see any, I just see people hopping on spiritual trends and making claims that, oh yeah, if you do this thing, you'll get the invisible carrot. And the invisible carrot may be personal awakening. It may be spiritual fulfillment. It may be a solution to the earth's crisis. There's all of these invisible carrots that are, that are, that are placed out there in the hopes of getting you to buy into a spiritual practice. And here is the one thing about spiritual practice that I found. Spiritual practice, by and large, is not about expanding your mind, transcendence, or exposing your mind to new ideas. It is about reinforcing the religious ideas that you go into the spiritual practice with. It is the exact opposite of what some people claim it is. It is a pathway to reconfirming and reaffirming your pre-existing spiritual beliefs. It is not a pathway to new knowledge. And I think conflating spiritual practice with a search for novelty or, or, or personal enlargement, enlargement of the psyche, is a wrong-headed idea. Spiritual discipline is there to keep your mind focused on the religious ideology and the goals of the religion and the spiritual practice. It's not there to open your mind to the new wondrous wowzer or whatever it is that people are looking for. It's there to keep you weighted down in your existing beliefs. And again, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people who would argue with me about that, but that is what I see. I don't see spiritual practice leading to new awakenings. I see people becoming more entrenched in their ideologies the more that they practice their spiritual discipline. And that only makes sense. I mean, that's the logical progression of the spiritual discipline, is that you start off with an ideology or a goal, you pick a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline, and that spiritual discipline just reinforces what you already believe. And I think people have been sold a bill of goods thinking that spiritual practice will lead them to new open doors in their awareness or in their consciousness. And I think it's just the opposite. Spiritual practice closes doors and it closes your eyes to the world around you because you have people telling you to sit down, shut your mouth, shut your eyes, and focus on the invisible carrot. Because one day, that invisible carrot will be yours.
I realized back in 1993 that exploring psychedelics on my own in the underground uh, with substances that I found entirely in the underground was essentially gambling with my mental health. I uh, felt I had a pretty strong psyche at the time. And I heard and read many times that people with a fragile psyche should maybe stay away from psychedelics because if you do have an underlying psychosis or a latent psychosis, that psychedelics could bring that to the fore, could, could bring that psychosis to the fore and, and have it be lingering and chronic and stick once the experience wore off. And I fully thought that knowing this going in would be a bonus because I would be able to tell when my psychic health, when my mental health was slipping to the point where I could catch myself if I was ever going down that road of insanity or psychotic delusion I would be able to catch myself and maybe in a vacuum uh, without all of this other psychic warfare going on around me I would have been able to do that but at the time I was still trying to figure out what was true I was trying to figure out what to believe because there was so much disinformation out there. Finding out what was true and what to believe was very hard. And I ran into a lot of people who said, well, don't believe in any of it. Psychedelics are really all about self-exploration, exploring inner space. It's all about exploring the psyche and seeing how far you can go on the inside. And to me, self-exploration always sounded like the ultimate form of narcissism. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to spend all my time exploring me because I'm so deep and complex. I'm an infinite well of craziness and wonder that I could get lost in forever. I could get lost in myself forever. And I, you know, I probably bought into that at some point that, that self-exploration was the key somehow. If I just dug further and further and further into my own mind, I would uncover something primal or cathartic that would release me <laughs> into a transcendent state where suddenly I was at peace with myself or whatever, whatever the myth is that they sell you. Maybe that's another, maybe self-exploration is another invisible carrot because there is really no prize there at the end of that journey other than coming back to yourself and realizing that you already understand yourself pretty well. I mean, you've lived with yourself your whole life. How much self-exploration do you need to do? And if you do need to do self-exploration, then, then maybe you should do that in, in therapy with somebody who's a trained therapist as opposed to sitting in a dark room with your head full of hallucinogens. And all of this other stuff about the new age, I felt that there was a lot of people buying into concepts of ESP and psychic powers who 
really had a fundamental lack of understanding about the nature of reality. I think that's where all of this comes from. That's where religion comes from. That's where myth comes from. That's where all of this psychic warfare comes from, is that people have a fundamental lack of understanding about the nature of reality. So that when they try to understand what's going on around them, they fall back to this human impulse for superstition. And we give external agency to the things around us that we don't understand. And not only do people have a fundamental lack of understanding about the nature of reality, they have an even deeper lack of understanding about the nature of consciousness. People walk around with consciousness in their head all day, and they have no idea how it works or what it is. It seems to be this magical force that's just imbued in our heads that glows like a light bulb as we walk around. And if you don't understand the nature of consciousness and you don't understand the nature of reality, it could be very easy to buy into notions of psychic disinformation or ESP or telepathy. And this is the, the biggest thing that happens in the psychedelic movement in the 20th century is that because the people studying these drugs had a fundamental lack of understanding about the nature of reality and a lack of understanding about the nature of consciousness, when they tried to come to grips with what was going on in the psychedelic experience, they made it all up. They just made it up. They said, oh, this feels like telepathy, so there must be telepathy. Or this feels like I'm having a clairvoyant vision. Or this feels like I'm channeling spirit aliens. So they jump on these archetypes, these spiritual archetypes, and try to stuff and shoehorn every single one of them into the psychedelic experience and say, see, there it is. We've explained it all. It's this ancient ritual of transcendence where we all pull down our egos and expose ourselves to the information of the galaxy or the universe and let the spirit wisdom pour in and we have magical visions and there that's how it works <laughs> which i found completely absolutely not satisfying at all um the whole idea of hallucination originating from an external agency came out of that period in the 70s, I believe, the 70s and 80s, when these new age movements, these new age philosophies or occult philosophies merged with shamanic ideology. So you get a conflation of spiritual traditions where suddenly hallucination and spirit channeling go hand in hand. And this is what I call an externalization of agency, which means that when you have a hallucination, I, I believe the most logical parsing of that experience is that it happens within your own head. And I think for the most part, 
In the early part of the 20th century, Huxley, Leary, Albert Hoffman, Stan Groff, all of the early researchers were very much on that logical side of the equation, saying that psychedelics are drugs, they affect the brain, they produce visions, they're psychotomimetic visions. Whatever the quality of the visions, horrifying or wondrous, those are all coming from inside the subject. If the visions are coming from inside the subject, then they are more like dreams. They're uh, products of the subconscious. You know, this is very uh, much Stan Groff's realm here, using uh, LSD or hallucinogens to uncover stored memories or uh, repressed memories or, um, you know, the innermost desires or the things that are the uh, cause of neurosis or psychosis. And you can see where a tool like that would be very beneficial in psychoanalysis, being able to, you know, uncover somebody's dream or touch somebody's inner dream life in the course of a therapy session is very valuable. I mean, and, and I still believe that psychedelics can be very valuable in uh, psychotherapy-assisted clinical treatments. But what was less part of the popular belief and popular culture, even up through the hippie movement in the late 60s, and probably a lot of the hippie burnout in the early 70s when people started moving on to other drugs, there was not really a solid core of people who were walking around claiming that hallucination was from some external source, from some external agency, like a spirit dimension or the afterlife, or what have you. That's what I tend to refer to as the superstitious parsing of the experience. Once I give the logical, it must all be within the brain, to the superstitious, where cause and effect of taking the drug or taking the sacred medicine and seeing the visions are not necessarily tied in a mechanical way to the brain or consciousness. It's part of a magical ritual that causes the spirits to appear. So in the superstitious paradigm, hallucination is not a product of the brain. It is a product of the eyes opening to a hidden reality where information is stored. And that information can be accessed in visions or voices or spirits or what have you whatever archetype you, you want to focus on. That particular concept, the shamanic paradigm or the superstitious paradigm, was not popular in psychedelic culture. In fact, I think maybe the first wave of psychedelic culture, the hippie culture and the party culture and the dropout culture and the commune, the intentional community culture there at the end of the 60s that, that, that sort of morphed from uh, a social movement into various different threads of people going their different ways, that psychedelic movement kind of came to an end. You know, various threads like the Grateful Dead and the Rainbow Family kind of kept it going. But it wasn't until the late 80s or 90s, after Carlos Castaneda and after other people like Michael Harner and maybe a handful of others, started going back to this 
traditional shamanic paradigm where the spirits or the ancestors were the key to the experience and that the externalization of vision was where the power was at in the experience. Now, this is a very nuanced discussion because everybody who does psychedelics or talks about psychedelics wants to find the power in the experience. They're not, I mean, some for some people it's just a distraction, right? So for some people it's just fun. It's just a fun way to distract the mind or uh, have an intense journey. But for other people, there's there's power there. There's meaning, there's change, there's transcendence, there's growth, there's catharsis, there's wisdom, uh, there's recovering lost memories. There's a, there's, there's a, the psychedelic is a tool. It's like a magical spell you cast to get that thing you want. So there's, there's a power there. And the concept of the power of the experience being in a hidden dimension or a spirit world that the drug opens your eyes to. Now that's, that's the power of all powers. Because you're essentially saying, yeah, this, this, this drug is the key. It's the back door into the mind of God or into the spirit dimension or across the barrier of life and death into the afterlife. Whatever your metaphor is, that's the power of all powers. That's the philosopher's stone. That's the holy grail. That's everything. That's the fountain of youth. That's whatever, whatever mythical religious artifact that you want to, uh, you know, make a metaphor with, you could make a metaphor. If you really believe that psychedelics are the key to crossing this, the spiritual barrier. And there are varying levels of power ascribed to psychedelics. I mean, it starts with self-exploration and introspection, you know, looking at your own mind. And then it morphs into uncovering hidden powers of the mind like psychic powers, telepathy, clairvoyance, etc. And then it moves into healing, right? They're therapeutic, they're healing. We're, we're doing some kind of good. It's some sort of medicine, some sort of spiritual medicine. That's, that's the power. And then it moves to, oh no, this lets you transcend the barriers of life and death. This is spirit walking. This is, this is channeling aliens and spirits from another dimension. So the power levels go from very mild and useful only in the realm of the personal to transpersonal, oh, mind-to-mind mind phenomena now, to cosmic, to, oh, yeah, this is, this is the key to unlocking every spiritual mystery we've ever had back to the beginning of creation and what happens after death. I mean, this is, this is a very quickly and rapidly accelerating level of power structure that goes on here in a span of about 30 years. Which brings me back to Terence McKenna, because he, more than anybody in the community, crossed that bridge between 
psychedelics, shamanism, and the New Age movement, where he was literally promising people spiritual power in a hit of DMT or a high dose of mushrooms. Not just introspection, not just self-awareness, not just radical self-exploration. Terence was literally talking about shattering a barrier to a hyperdimension or a spirit world where this, co this cosmic information can be accessed. I mean, he said himself many times that uh, his intention was to take seriously the notion of the shamanic ar archetype of spirit channeling and, you know, touching a spirit dimension and being able to find wisdom and information there and that he thought that it was, it was perhaps the greatest and most startling discovery of humankind. And if you look at the titles of a couple of his books, you can see this notion of an external agency or a hidden dimension described literally in very nice language. The invisible landscape. That's wonderful. It's poetic. True hallucinations. Well, what is a true hallucination? So th th these memes of hallucinations being real in a space, in a metaphysical space somewhere, out in the invisible landscape, was the poetry that Terence crafted to deliver the concept of externalization of agency to this next generation of psychedelic explorers. Now, not, not everyone bought into Terence's rap. There are many people of that era who just thought that he was ridiculous. Um, I, for the most part, thought that he was ridiculous, but he took himself seriously enough and other people took him seriously enough that I started to wonder if he was onto something. And that's why I decided that I would interview him because, you know, as I was starting into this, this journey of figuring out how psychedelics worked and what they did, I wanted to talk to the guy at the top who seemed to have the most power and the best explanation of what was going on and see if he was actually sane or if he was out of his mind. Because at the time, I remember having discussions with many people who were very into Terence and other people who were extremely skeptical of Terence, who, you know, had no relation to the psychedelic community. They'd only heard of him secondhand through New Age friends or just accidentally. And I would ask people, how can his popularity continue to grow when all of the claims that he's making are really kind of ridiculous. They're really out there on the fringe. Why doesn't anybody challenge him on any of this stuff? Why do people just kind of kind of lap it up as if it's the truth? And the responses that I got were, were all over the place. From, well, people buy it because they like it, and it, it sounds very much like their own experiences, so they want to identify with what he's saying and assume that they've all had the same experience because that's what people really want is just somebody to validate their own experience. So the reason that people like Terence is that they're validating something that they felt themselves, which is this, you know, 
hyperdimensional access or whatever. And another person would say, I don't really believe anything that Terrence is saying, but he's just a brilliant speaker and I love listening to him. And even though what he has to say is kind of crazy, he does it in such a colorful way. It's, um, it's fun. And, I've, and then finally a friend told me, you know, the reason nobody can challenge Terrence is because he's really in his own world. You can't go to, say, um, H.P. Lovecraft or J.R.R. Tolkien and ask them why their fantasy world isn't different <laughs> or why their fantasy world doesn't more closely match reality. It's because it is a fantasy world. And if you try to challenge him on it, you're just saying that your fantasy sucks. You're not, because he's not offering these ideas in a scientific forum. He's not trying to get these ideas through a peer-reviewed journal. There is no, no official way to challenge anything he says. You either have to believe it or you just don't believe it. You know, it's, it's fantasy. However, at the same time, Rick Strassman had published DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and had done some peer-reviewed academic papers on the apparent phenomenon of entities in the psychedelic experience. So there was this weird thing going on where suddenly the power of all powers, the ability to cross the threshold between life and death, this cosmic power of the shaman had a small window of being a legit thing. And now I have my own problems with, with Rick Strassman's theories. I may talk about it in another episode, but there's plenty of me talking about that in other places. But what it did was it opened the doorway for something testable here. If you could just get your hands on enough DMT, you can do this experiment yourself. This is not only what Terence was saying, this is the idea that was going through my head back in those days, back in that period of time. And I'm not gonna talk a lot about my experience interviewing Terence, but what I did realize walking out of his door and getting back in my car and driving out of Occidental California that day. What I thought and what I felt more certainly than I had previously was that Terrence was mentally unbalanced. Not that he appeared in any way crazy or dangerous to himself or schizophrenic or bipolar or whatever, but there was something in the way that he pr presented himself and defended himself in response to, to certain questions and certain suppositions that made me feel like, oh, this is just, this is more than just a hypothesis this guy is floating. His, everything about his identity is wrapped up in, in, in these illusions being real or at least some part of them being real. And that in and of itself is very powerful when you're confronted with somebody like that. And a few days later, when I had the opportunity to talk to Terrence again at the Seeds of Change conference, 
I asked him, I said, so if, if we had a bunch of DMT and we wanted to do an experiment, um, kind of like what Rick Strassman did, you know, how would we go about it? And, and, and what would we do? And um, how, how would we know if it was successful? And he said, well, you just need to, you know, share it around with enough people and, you know, sort of give them the technique, let, you know, make sure they know the trick and then, you know, see if they, you know, if they do go through this process and, and to do meet the, the hyperspatial elves. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's, that seems like something that I might be able to swing. And it was only about an hour later that I ran into a man standing at a table selling copies of Psychedelic Illuminations magazine. And that man was Ron Piper. And I could probably fill a couple of episodes just about stories of Ron Piper. <laughs> but uh, that would be too much. That would be too much of a diversion. But what did happen was, standing there talking to Ron Piper, I was thumbing through the magazine. I said, oh yeah, I just did an interview with Terrence. Maybe uh, you guys would want to publish it. He was like, oh, you know, Terrence, hey, great, yeah, that would be, that would be awesome. And I was looking over the magazine and thinking, hey, you guys probably could use, like, um, layout and editing people, right? He was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And I was like, well, okay, well, I live down in Southern California near you. Maybe we could hook up and, uh, and you know, maybe I can help you out on the magazine. And, uh, and you know, we can kind of network and, and pool our resources. And uh, he was really happy to hear that I was interested in volunteering, but he was also really skeptical. And this was probably one of my first experiences with somebody in the community being paranoid that I might be an agent trying to infiltrate them. And he didn't say that right off the, uh, right off the bat, but when I was trying to narrow down where he lived or where I could get in contact with him or a phone number or any kind of contact information like that, he suddenly became spooked and wanted to know who I was. And I had to tell him that I was, you know, I was a journalist and I had some clippings with me and uh, I kind of proved that I was who I was, and he finally gave me uh, a phone number where I could contact him, which was a voicemail number, I believe, or a pager number. But here was the other interesting thing, is as we talked a little bit more, I told him that, uh, yeah, I was interested in doing um, a study with a bunch of people on DMT and seeing what the the responses were to smoke DMT done, you know, in the Terrence McKenna style. And if it, if it had that sort of spirit entity thing and Ron Piper went, Oh yeah, everybody's looking for DMT.
classic, of course. Fairies wear boots. Black Sabbath, paranoid. Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne, of course. No strangers to LSD, possibly one of the heaviest consumers of acid at that time. Uh, probably right around that time that record was recorded. And like many people, I was fascinated with Terence McKenna's description of DMT elves and really wanted to test that hypothesis. Not because I wanted to see elves particularly, but because Terence was so adamant that this was a thing. And I talked to everybody I met about this, not just people who were interested in psychedelics, but people who were interested in, you know, alternative spiritualities. And somebody, a good friend in the psychedelic community, once asked me, James, why do you care what people believe? Why can't you just let them go off on their own thing? And it's not that I really cared what people believed. It was the disinformation that I was objecting to. Because... It seemed like everywhere I looked in the psychedelic literature, there was nothing but disinformation. Which was totally understandable, of course, because if you delegitimize psychedelics and psychedelic research, then there isn't going to be any legitimate psychedelic research. So everything that comes out in the literature is, by default, going to be something that's poorly informed, misinformed, or lacking crucial knowledge needed to shed real light, therefore causing deceit and obfuscation. In other words, disinformation. Disinformation is another, it's just a fancy word for lies, stuff that isn't true. And I'm not saying that people in the psychedelic culture were telling lies. They earnestly believe the things that they are saying. I believe that they earnestly believe the things that they are saying, and I believe that about Terence. That he earnestly believed the things that he was saying. He did not believe that he was lying to anybody. He may have been sneaky. He may have tried to conceal the truth in a clever package uh, that gave him an out if somebody really questioned him on a sticky issue. But he didn't really believe that he was lying. He wanted to believe that everything that he was saying was true. But a lie told in earnest is still false. It's still disinformation. So as somebody who wanted to kind of get to the root or the bottom of whatever the physiological process was, I was frustrated that there was so much disinformation to wade through. And not only was there so much disinformation, it seemed like people didn't even question the fact that they were being fed disinformation. They just accepted it as information. And that was also troubling to me. And I think of a line, I'm going to have to paraphrase Penn Jillette here. Uh, Penn Jillette, of course, is a famous magician, part of Penn and Teller. And he's also an atheist, and he's also a skeptic, and he's also a debunker. And I have a very strong affinity for Penn Jillette because I, res I respect his mind um, and, and the way he thinks, even though I don't agree with him with necessarily everything. But I respect his mind and his analysis of reality. 
And Penn Jillette performed magic for many years, and eventually he had to stop per- start performing something like anti-magic, where he would explain the trick to the people in the audience as he went, because he found that if he didn't explain to the audience that they were doing tricks, there was a certain segment of the audience that would just believe the magic was true, that they were really doing magic. And Penn Jillette found that troubling because he did not want to lie to people. He did not want to fool people. He did not want them to actually believe that they were using magic. He wanted people to have a magical experience and take part in the illusion and feel the joy of being fooled by the illusion. But he did not want them to walk out of the theater thinking that the magic was real. It was very important to him. He did not want people to walk out of the theater thinking that the magic was real, because that would have been a lie. Now, Terence and many people I have met in the psychedelic community are the exact opposite. They desperately want people to believe that the magic is real, and that all of the sparks and illusions and hallucinations and weirdness that comes at you through the psychedelic experience, it's not a trick. It's not some sleight of hand. It's not a hall of mirrors. It's real magic. And it was that feeling more than anything that kind of drove me in those early days. I wanted to know, could there be real magic here? Could there be real spirits? Could there be real hyperdimension? I was willing to do the experiment and take the chance and see for myself if this thing that Terence was describing was real. So it took some time. Um, it took some perseverance. Um, I did wind up working with Ron Piper at Psychedelic Illuminations, which was a very surreal experience. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about what those days were like, but if you've ever seen The X-Files in certain episodes, they come across this group of independent researchers called the Lone Gunmen, which are like uh, three nerdy nebishy characters that kind of have big stacks of paper and conspiracy files and briefs that they're tracking down constantly. And the Psychedelic Illuminations office, the secret Psychedelic Illuminations office, was very much like visiting the Lone Gunmen. The papers were stacked high. There were boxes all over the place. Uh, The conspiracy ran deep. The paranoia ran deep. And everybody was into their own little academic niche or specialty of the psychedelic movement. There were activists. There were chemist types. There was cyber types. There were uh, pot people. There were mushroom people. There were, you know, there was all sorts of facets of the community coming through that little nexus there. And through some of the people I met via Psychedelic Illuminations and and some of the networks that I met in Southern California after that, I was able to eventually get my hands on two grams of DMT, which is a lot. I mean, if, if for, for, for most people in the 90s looking for DMT, it was nowhere to be found, and maybe they never found any. Uh, however, I did the legwork. I tracked down the people that I needed 
to know and meet and was able to get my hands on two grams of DMT, which if you think of 50 milligrams as a strong dose smoked, that was about 30 to 40 hits of DMT. And this is really where my radical self-experimentation started because I had now at my disposal the means to test Terence's hypothesis and not only test it, but actually dig into it and see if I could figure out what was going on. And the interesting thing about the first time I smoked DMT was that I actually did see a couple elves. Not exactly the way that I was expecting to, uh, but they were there. And I want to be really precise about this because I don't want you to take this out of context. But what I saw was, um, like you see on a lot of psychedelics, the textures on walls and surfaces began to shine and morph. And as the textures that I was looking at on the stucco ceiling kind of started bubbling and morphing, I could see, like, the faces of elves. And, like, elves sort of trying to get out of the ceiling. Like, they were stuck, hung there in the stucco or in the plaster. And the plaster was sort of mo moving like, like, a, like a cartoon membrane. Uh, kind of undulating and all of the surfaces seem to be doing this and if you've ever smoked DMT and you've had an experience like this you know you know what I'm talking about but the elves that I saw did not have any kind of what I would call an external agency they were only there if I were looking for them it's not that I think elves would just automatically appear if I smoked DMT. I actually had to be staring into some sort of patterned surface where the suggestion of an elf might be and then concentrate on seeing that form and then maybe I would see it and then maybe it would morph and move and, and become 3D and look like it was actually something. But the more I tried to hone in on it and get it to interact and make it, you know, do something, the more it seemed to elude me and uh, the trip would sort of melt into something else. Uh, and, you know, inconclusive was the, the first test results that I had because, yeah, I saw something that was kind of like elves, and it was a little startling, but it was nothing like the hyperdimensional elves or the space realm uh, that Terence was talking about. It was something much more gooey and creepy and subtle than that. But I did go armed with 30 to 40 doses of DMT and over the next few months recruited personal friends of mine, people who had expressed an interest in trying it, who wanted to try it. I would basically set them up give them instructions, give them the pipe, tell them how to do it, and let them try it out. And some people I let them try it even twice because they said maybe the first time they didn't do it right. And there were all kinds of reactions. 
there were all kinds of reactions that people had. Um, some people just saw s like stars, like scintillations, like sparkling, like everything started to sparkle. Uh, some people had like a classic mushroom or LSD peak where just the walls were breathing and everything was oozy and gooey and, and, you know, big and deep and ancient for a few minutes. And then I saw one person just pass out. They just took a big hit and held it in and then just went right over sideways on the couch and, uh, woke up about a minute later and asked what had happened. <laughs> Uh, I saw one person kind of curl up and uh, go fetal. There was another person who smoked it and uh, really got into a painting that I had, a poster that somebody had sent me, and uh, was just like really into to, to looking at the, the depth and uh, the weirdness in the poster. And I actually had uh, somebody... Um, who knew that I had the DMT uh, go sneak a few hits away from me when I wasn't looking uh, because they knew how hard it was to get and they knew they probably wouldn't find it again. So there were all sorts of experiences and reactions that people had to DMT, but not one, not one out of, I don't know, the 20 to 30 people that I experimented with came back and said, yes, I smoked the DMT. Yes, I got sucked into a hyperdimension. And yes, I saw elves there. Not one. So out of 30 people smoking over two grams of DMT, this, is, this all didn't happen in one night. This happened over a period of many months, like I said. But the first-hand accounts of 30 people smoking one to two hits of DMT each was that elf contact was zero. Now, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but even in my, my, my next secondary tertiary experiences with DMT over the years, I'd had, I've come across many different batches of DMT, and they've all been pretty much the same. And only on one time, that first time, when I was really, really con consciously focusing on maybe trying to see elves somewhere, did I see the hint or the suggestion of elf for a few seconds. For a few seconds, elf contact was made. But I was never once convinced that they were real elves. They were, they were projections of, of, of what I was looking for. And so I was kind of, you know... I, I was a little bit confused, you know, at, at there's some point you go, well, am I just doing it wrong or is it all BS? And eventually, uh, towards the end of this, this experiment, I came to the conclusion that it was all BS because nobody was, I mean, some people had heard of Terrence, some people had heard of DMT, they didn't see elves, other people had tried a couple psychedelics previously maybe acid or mushrooms and they tried it and they didn't see elves. Some people had never done psychedelics before, but had heard about DMT and were interested in trying it and they didn't see elves. And, uh, I have, I've, I gave it to some people who smoke extremely large doses and didn't really get anything other than like kind of a buzzing in the head 
or like a weird vibration behind their eyes. So the the effects of the DMT um, were not as promised per Terence McKenna or by Rick Strassman, who hadn't published The Spirit Molecule yet, but we all knew about him in the community because of the few papers that he had published on the studies that he was doing. So over the period of about six months to a year, I became that guy. I became the guy who basically every time somebody said, oh yeah, Terrence McKenna, DMT, hyperspatial elves, blah, blah, blah. I had to become the guy who would say, well, has anybody here actually tried DMT? And they would say, no. And I would say, well, I tried it and over you know, 30 trials with 20 to 30 different people, nothing spectacular happened. Nothing, anything like elf entity contact happened. And I would get a lot of pushback from people saying, well, you guys probably weren't doing it wrong, or how do you know it was actually DMT, or, you know, all of this other stuff. But I eventually became that guy. Uh, I had to be the one who could legitimately and authoritatively say, hey, I tried this test for myself, and it was inconclusive. So then I tried the test with everybody that I could find until we ran out of substance and still nothing. Now, this isn't any kind of report that I could publish in a scientific journal. This all happened un underground, and I never expected to, to publish anything on it. Um, the only thing I was interested in doing is figuring out, was there anything worth pursuing there? And my answer was, beyond a good time and something weird? No. There wasn't anything there. Uh, Maybe you smoke DMT and see spirits, and that's, you know, hey, good for you. But you're one of the few. That's not the typical reaction, at least as far as I could see. So I knew there was something more going on there. It wasn't just the DMT. You had to be primed with the notion that there were going to be elves there. You had to be suggested. You had to be pre-implanted with the suggestion, the inception, that DMT was going to pr produce ELF results. And without that really strong suggestion, the advanced inception, probably nothing was going to happen. Probably nothing spectacular was going to happen because it's just a quick hit hallucinatory experience. So I then went on to hypothesize that if you had stronger priming and stronger suggestions that there was a spirit element and you could make the trip last longer, then the chances of actually manifesting spirit entities goes way up. And if you know what I'm talking about, immediately your suggestion is going to be to jump to ayahuasca. Because with ayahuasca, you can make the DMT experience last a couple hours and get really deep into that experience and spend a lot of time prepping and priming for the experience. So that became my next path of radical self-experimentation. I said, well, let's see if we take this to the next step and we follow a very strict ritual protocol from a traditional culture then maybe we can get some kind of sustained spirit activity 
and then we can really find out what's going on here. And I can tell you now that over the course of the years that followed through my experimentation, I did manage to conjure elves again. I conjured them more than a couple times. And each time I did it, each time I was successfully able to channel some kind of spirit entity, it only left me more perplexed and more confused. And I can remember in the moment of doing it, when you sit down and do it and you actually do manage to manifest a spirit entity, the first thing that goes through my mind is, why on earth would anyone do this? Who needs to conjure spirit entities into their life? What level of rational breakdown do you need to be at in order to go into a spirit world seeking entities to give you information and or guidance about your life? And really, legitimately, how insane do you have to be to believe that what the spirits have to say to you in that state is anything close to true or has anything to do with reality because in most cases it just doesn't really sped up the process for me coke uh, uh, coke yeah for sure i mean i can thread my nose with a shoelace yeah. i got the, the hole going through so there's a, a pretty big hole through yeah um and uh coke was always a thing and 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 i would get like, like with ketamine and pcp and nitrous because you'll like, do any, like that's weird because you'll do anything with your body and anything with your brain like you <laughs> you, you with the same sort of thing i'm going to get through it i imagine that some of those drugs, because like you lose control. Yeah, and I think that's more specifically like I, I, I like psychosis was like, like a regular thing for me. I would be like on coke, like when once I got into like my third day of a of a coke yeah. bender, and and I'm inhaling nitrous, like you know, almost like to the exclusion of air. I'm just trying to inhale nitrous oxide and and be on cocaine. And and I would go through these episodes where I was hearing voices. Yeah, and, no, I've, and, uh, I've had that. Yeah, yeah cocaine, psychosis. I, mean, I yeah. fucking loved it too, man. Like uh, people would be walking around my apartment, like they're they're like uh, they were never there, but like I see them. Oh right, you know? right. Like well, yeah, I see people walking through the walls yeah, and shit. Surprise friends. Yeah, yeah. and I'm hearing voices and all this, and uh, and you were entertained by it. I loved it, man. <laughs> I fucking loved it. Like like frankly, like I miss that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like a lot of people think like, oh, you know, like a drink would be nice. Like, yeah. It'd be cool if I could just smoke a joint. Like, no, like I want to pile drugs into my body until there's a fucking room full of people who don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. I'm you know? sorry that you, you miss your friends. <laughs> that was Steve-O talking with uh, Mark Marin on the WTF podcast from earlier this year in t 2016. And I wanted to include that interlude because I think Steve-O has one of the best 
and most realistic views on this subject that I have ever heard from anybody in the psychedelic community or any community. Now, Steve-O is not a spiritual guy. I mean, maybe he has some spiritual beliefs, but that is not what drove his drug, drug experimentation or his drug use. He was a hardcore addict. I mean, hardcore. Because he liked to live his life to the extreme. Radical self-experimentation. Radical self-expression. And you can tell from his voice and his enthusiasm for talking about drug psychosis and the phenomena of conjuring people who aren't there. That it's an extremely fun and powerful thing when you're in it. And when you're not in it, you begin to miss it. And after listening to Stevo's extremely sad and revealing view of psychosis and the phenomena of seeing disincarnate entities in the middle of psychosis, it really makes me want to juxtapose the kind of language that some people in the psychedelic community use who would say that taking drugs and summoning spirits or ancestors or some sort of external agency summoning people who aren't there, that's a spiritual practice. That's an evolution of consciousness. You're actually entering into a spirit world, and Stevo is actually a shaman because he's found the gateway to the other world. Now, if you believe Stevo is a shaman and that he has found a gateway to another world, then you have already been indoctrinated into the mindset that would allow you to believe that. But any rational, logical perspective, even Stevo's personal perspective, is that he just really, really loved psychosis. He just really loved psychosis, so he would find any drug or combination of drugs that would lead him into that state and deliver the phenomena to him. He, was, he loved the phenomena. He was addicted to the phenomena of conjuring people who weren't there or hearing voices from people who weren't there. That was like his favorite thing to do. But not because it was spiritual, and not because he was gaining new insights, and not because he was healing himself, or that he was seeking clairvoyant wisdom. It was because it was fun, and he enjoyed it. And now is the point where I try to pull all of the threads of this episode together into one sad bundle. Of misery and I wasn't exactly sure where I was going with this episode but as I was starting to do research on the new age and where even the term new age came from I stumbled across the name Marsha Moore now some of you in the uh, psychedelic community may know the name Marsha Moore um, I have to admit that I went for many years and never heard the name Marsha Moore. Marsha Moore was an heiress to the Sheraton hotel chain fortune who became a writer, an astrologer, and a yoga teacher after she visited India and the East and started studying Hinduism and spiritual practices related to Hinduism. She is often credited with 
popularizing astrology among uh, modern intellectuals. Uh, she's also credited with popularizing yoga and something called reincarnation therapy, which is where you are put into a trance and sent on a visualization exercise to recall your past lives. And I believe she called this hypersentience therapy. So she was very much on the fringe of uh, the occult in an era that was before the New Age. And in fact, Marsha Moore is sometimes credited with bringing in the term New Age. In many of her astrology books, she talked about the age of Aquarius or the Aquarian age when there would be a great change in humanity. Now, I know this sounds familiar to a lot of people in the psychedelic community. There's always someone talking about how we're on the cusp of a great change, whether it be Terence McKenna's The End of Time or Jose Arguez's uh, The Harmonic Convergence. There are uh, many different versions of this, The Awakening of the Gaian Mind, The Evolution of Human Consciousness, on and on and on. So the idea of the Aquarian age, or the age of Aquarius, comes out of astrology. And Marsha Moore was one of the main people uh, pushing this notion that we were entering an Aquarian age, a new age. So the new age itself is really a shorthand for the age of Aquarius, which was, as you well know, back in the 60s, a big meme. It was, you know, the song in the movie Hair or actually first in the uh, stage play here, uh, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Yeah, all the hippies were very, very happy that, that the age of Aquarius was dawning because that would mean that there would be a new evolution of the human spirit and we would all enter an age of wonder or happiness. I don't know, you have to go back and read all of these old astrology books to figure out what people were expecting would happen in the age of Aquarius. Now, Marsha Moore wasn't just your average heiress, dilettante, intellectual, astrologer, reincarnation therapy, yoga expert. According to Wikipedia, she was also married seven times. According to other reports, I've read that she was married four times or five times. Either way, for whatever reason, uh, Marsha Moore could not stay with her husband's or her husband's could not stay with her and uh, this is quite unusual for a woman of her age living in the 1950s and 60s um, heiress or not being uh, married and divorced four five six seven times is extremely unusual now the other unusual thing about Marsha Moore is that she was one of the first serious investigators into the psychoactive use of the dissociative ketamine. In the later part of her career, she became fascinated with ketamine as a tool for exploring higher states of consciousness or the deeper self or the higher self. And remember, she had spent her entire career already studying astrology, yoga, reincarnation, and a lot of these sort of new age memes that point to some sort of transcendence or dislocation of the soul from the body. And you can see how ketamine fits into this narrative of yoga, chakra, past life regression, 
getting in touch with your inner self, your higher self, seeing your immortal soul. Ketamine, of course, fits right in to this entire narrative. So it's no surprise that Marsha Moore, after being introduced to ketamine, became fascinated with ketamine. And sometime in the mid-70s, shortly after she had been introduced to ketamine, she even married an anesthesiologist, Howard Altunian, who assisted her with her ketamine experimentation. Now, in 1978, Marsha Moore and Howard Sonny Altunian wrote a book about their ketamine experimentation called Journeys into the Bright World, which back in the 70s was one of the only books on ketamine ever written, other than, of course, the work of John Lilly. And to get you into the mind space of Marsha Moore, I want to just read a few short passages from this book, Journeys into the Bright World. The subtitle is Pioneering a New Path to Higher Consciousness, a personal account by the extraordinary couple who risked everything to learn its secrets. That's right. This book promises to give you the information, the secrets about higher consciousness learned from Marsha Moore, the acclaimed astrologer and reincarnation therapist. Now, I want you to recall for a moment what I said about a lot of these New Age manifestos or these ideologies that are put forth by the New Age community. Almost every single time one of these New Age experts comes out with a manifesto, they have to start the book by saying, that the world is in some kind of crisis. Now, Albert Hoffman did this in his book, LSD, My Problem Child, as I talked about at the end of the last episode. Of course, Albert Hoffman did it in his last chapter when he described LSD possibly as a remedy to the alienation and depression caused by the great entelechy neurosis or uh, the schizoid tragedy in which humans lost their sense of self in the world. Now, that chapter raised some red flags for me because I saw Albert Hoffman falling into this same trap of creating a metaphysical straw man, a crisis, that he could then claim LSD was the solution to, the medicine for, the meta-medicine for solving the problems of the world. Albert Hoffman's book was released in uh, 1979, I believe. Journeys into the Bright World was released in 1978. And it opens up on the first page, actually before the first uh, chapter, in an introduction in Marsha Moore's own words. She says, Truly, we are now living in the midst of Armageddon. At this moment of supreme planetary crisis, every effort must be made to regenerate the ailing body of humanity, to redeem our discordant past, and to salvage the best elements of our modern culture as seeds for future seasons of growth. Out of our concern with the current world situation, we have decided to publicize our research even before we can vindicate our activities with a mass of meticulously documented statistical studies. In short, we are, quote, blowing our cover with the full knowledge that we are taking a calculated risk in stirring up resistances before we are strong enough to withstand the opposition. There simply isn't time to fiddle while Rome burns. So what Marsha Moore is saying is that they decided to release their personal experiences with ketamine even before 
they had any scientific proof that ketamine did work as a tool for accessing higher consciousness because they saw that there was a moment of planetary crisis and they needed to act immediately to get this research out there. She goes on to say, Journeys into the Bright World is an intensely personal account of the stages by which we came to believe that, in the right hands, this unique substance could be safely, easily, and advantageously applied towards the psycho-spiritual regeneration of planet Earth. Now, I can't make this up. They're writing a book on ketamine, and the book starts, the first page of the book, the first text of the book, is this call to arms claiming that the earth is in crisis. We are now living in the midst of Armageddon. And the only way that we can fix the planet earth is through the use of ketamine. Ketamine can be safely, easily, and advantageously applied towards the psycho-spiritual regeneration of planet earth. Can you believe that? Ketamine Taking ketamine, according to Marsha Moore, was a spiritual practice to fight the crisis on planet Earth and lead us all towards psycho-spiritual regeneration. That was the mindset in writing this book. She believed that she had found the key to psycho-spiritual regeneration of the planet Earth, and it was shooting yourself up with ketamine. That was the key to psycho-spiritual regeneration of the planet Earth, according to Marsha Moore. Now, I, I can't help but look at this in hindsight and feel that Marsha Moore was seriously deluded by a lifetime of spiritual practice into thinking that by doping herself up with ketamine, she was actually touching her higher self and finding some sort of psycho-spiritual magic that she could then use to fix whatever crisis was affecting a seven-times-married heiress to the Sheraton Hotel chain. I'm sure she was living a constant string of crises. And I'm sure she fully believed that uh, the Earth's destruction was at hand, and that she had become a metaphysical warrior for getting the population of Earth back on track in the happy age of Aquarius. And I'll read another passage from the first chapter, which also kind of gives an insight into her mindset when she decided to try ketamine for the first time. She says, and I quote, As a longtime metaphysical student, I felt duty-bound to cultivate some first-hand acquaintance with the magic potions that so strongly stimulated the occult revival of the last part of this century. After all, much of my literary success stemmed from the coincidence of having returned from a two-and-a-half-year sojourn in India to set up shop as a yoga teacher in 1961, just in time to ride the rising wave of interest in Eastern philosophies. While observing the successive crests of the Zen, Beatnik, Macrobiotic, Psychedelic, Hippie movement, it was gratifying to fancy that I played a small role in advancing the causes of yoga, astrology, and reincarnation therapy. At the same time, those of us who were in the vanguard need to remember that the cocks who crow at daybreak have not thereby made the sun come up. For sure, the light of the new age was ready to dawn. 
Okay, so there's Marsha Moore, uh, maybe not coining the term New Age, but using the term New Age to talk about how her metaphysical studies and her writing had kind of influenced this occult revival at the end of the 20th century. Even though she claims that it wasn't all her, she was just sort of on the cusp. She was the one who saw it coming first. Now, I have to admit that I have not read the entire book, Journeys into the Bright World, because I find a lot of it um, frustrating and difficult to read. And I'll give you a sample paragraph just to show you what I mean. I'm going to go to chapter 7. It's called Gentle Magic. And this is after a variety of experimentation where Marsha Moore is now explaining exactly what is going on in the ketamine space. And here, here we go. She's going to explain to us how ketamine works, what's going on, and how we use it. Okay, here we go. Gentle magic. And I quote, It was becoming increasingly apparent that this was not a book we were writing as much as a book we were living. In the samadhi state, brought on by ketamine, we had seen how the entire universe is controlled by thought. That is, the outer crust of phenomenal appearances is simply the defining limit of the life energies which ray forth from an omnipresent cosmic vortex. These originating emanations percolate down through a formative gridwork of archetypes, from the god-made to the angel-made to the man-made, until all at once they freeze into the congealed contours of matter. In the end, as in the beginning, there is nothing but consciousness. We change the world only to the extent that we can modify our awareness of what is going on, quote, out there. Now that we were starting to understand these rules of the game, it was up to us to try to direct these conditioning energies on a higher causal levels where they were still fluid. Okay, so after reading chapter after chapter of stuff like that, not only did I realize that Marsha Moore had no idea what she was talking about, but I also began to realize that, oh, she was crazy. And not just, say, bipolar, which I'm guessing maybe she was, based on how many times she was married and the way she lived her life, but crazy from her own belief systems. Because here's the problem people run into when they come into contact with hallucinogens or the psychedelic experience since they have no concept of neuroscience pharmacology consciousness or the way the brain works at all the only tools they have for deconstructing the experience is this kind of intellectual metaphysical bullshit that they dragged into the experience with them so, Marsha Moore, taking ketamine, did not see, oh, this is an anesthetic that dissociates the brain from perceptual structures and puts it into an internal dream loop that seems infinite and expansive. She doesn't do that. No. She says that ketamine helps her relive her past identities. She goes back to ancient Egypt. She touches the stars. She becomes one with, with flowers and trees. There's all of this very poetic, magical stuff going on in her adventures with ketamine that have absolutely nothing to do 
with how ketamine actually works in the brain and what she was actually doing to her brain when she was taking ketamine. Instead, we get a lot of this stuff about reincarnation and yoga and the samadhi state and all of these pieces of Eastern spirituality that she had become famous for, that had become part of her identity, the reincarnation therapy, the yoga, the samadhi state, etc. And she immediately begins to apply her ketamine experiences to those metaphysical concepts. And this mistake was very costly for her because in 1979, a couple years after this book had been written, Marsha Moore vanished from the face of the earth. And I mean, she just vanished. She was completely gone. She was missing. Nobody knew what happened to her. The police searched and searched and searched for her for years. Her husband had no idea what happened to her. She vanished without a trace. And this is how I was introduced to Marsha Moore. When I moved to Seattle back in the mid-90s, I received a uh, packet of Xeroxed news clippings from a reader of Psychedelic Illuminations who had learned that I had moved to the Pacific Northwest. Now, Marsha Mar Moore, when she vanished, she was living in Seattle, or near Seattle, and it was a huge story in the Seattle press. And I have two years of news clippings here about the heiress who vanished without a trace. Uh, psychic Marsha Moore still missing amid tales of drug use and the occult. Psychics join in search for woman looking for Marsha Moore. They employed a group of psychics to find Marsha Moore. Marsha Moore, the mysterious disappearance, baffles police. Exhaustive search for psychic leaves husband desolate. Here we go, months later. Did drug kidnap missing psychic? A story about maybe ketamine told Marsha Moore to disappear. Writer Moore says witches may have slain his sister. This is uh, Marsha Moore's brother came out with a statement that he was sh pretty sure that witches may have slain his sister. And these went on and on and on and on until I'm guessing maybe 1980 or 1981 when the skull of Marsha Moore was found in a tree near the home that she disappeared from nearly two years earlier. And although police say the murder was never solved and her disappearance is still a mystery, people in the know know that her skeletal remains were found with a needle and a small supply of ketamine that she had taken with her. And the theory of her disappearance goes like this. She and her husband, after writing this book, remained addicted to ketamine for a year or two, even though Marsha had tried to quit many times before, and her husband, Howard Sonny Altunian, had been trying to keep ketamine away from her because it was leading her towards a path of self-destruction. And so on one night in 1979, in order to get away from her husband and sneak out, she grabbed a secret stash of ketamine and some needles and ran 
into the night, the cold northwest night, climbed up a tree into a comfortable place and shot herself with ketamine until sometime in the middle of the night she froze to death. Again, this is mostly speculation put together after the fact, but it seems fairly clear in retrospect what happened to Marsha Moore. The gentle magic of ketamine, the magical potion that was going to lead to the psycho-spiritual regeneration of the planet Earth, led her up a tree in the middle of the night where she froze to death, high out of her mind. And it's not as if she naively was experimenting with ketamine under the guise that it was perfectly safe. Uh, she has a chapter called Cautionary Notes where she says this, quote, For the person who rarely or even occasionally resorts to ketamine, the safety factor is remarkably high. However, the heavy user should watch himself carefully since there can be cumulative effects that are not immediately apparent. The overexcitation, sense of invincibility, and of omnipotence that may accompany repeated experimentation can militate against the practice of due caution. So, she knew. Marsha Moore knew that heavy ketamine users would in some way become delusional about their own sense of mortality and start acting incautiously and dangerously. It's, it's right here in her book. And yet, knowing all this, knowing all the cautions, and having all of the metaphysical insight and spiritual discipline that goes along with being a yoga master, somehow she could not see what was going on in herself. And this lack of foresight led to her own demise. And this is how the woman who may be predominantly responsible for bringing the New Age movement to the United States, the woman who very consciously decided to try and meld hallucinogens with metaphysical practice, the woman who by all rights should be as famous as Timothy Leary or John Lilly or Terence McKenna or any of the other psychonauts out there who've written many books promising the same sorts of things, Marsha Moore went down in history as the heiress who vanished because of ketamine and because of her inability to see past her own narrow view of the world. That is lute music from Julian Bream, the uh, amazing classical guitarist, off of his uh, album, The Wood So Wild. Now, as I was starting into this episode, I knew I wanted to talk about the New Age and how ideas from the New Age have merged with the psychedelic philosophy, I think, to an extreme disservice. 
because I don't think the concepts of the New Age are particularly suited for the task of trying to figure out what's going on in the psychedelic space. If anything, they muddy up the conversation with all of this convoluted metaphysical stuff that does not actually give the user any answers or any directions. It just tells them that they're doing something special, something special that might even help save the planet, which is, I think, the most wrong-headed thing you could tell somebody going into a psychedelic experience, that, no, this isn't a recreational drug, this isn't something that we're doing for fun or for, you know, exploration into the, the, the workings of the brain. This is a spiritual exercise that's going to help heal the planet. Now get to it. And if the planet isn't healing, then just go out and do more until it does heal. This seems to be the recurring cry of people who adopt New Age memes into their psychedelic practice. We need to awaken the guy in mind. We need to evolve human consciousness. We need to heal the planet. We need to be the spiritual warriors leading the charge against alienation and depression and violence of humans against other humans, etc., etc. And these are all noble ideas, but they are also at their heart delusional ideas. They're narcissistic ideas that we, as someone as an individual, can take a drug and save the planet, or that you, as an individual, are actually responsible or capable of saving the planet. It's not anybody's responsibility to save the planet. This is a, a myth of the New Age. And all, like I said, all of the manifestos of the New Age, this is a red flag. And the New Age morphs and changes. It's not always past life regression in astrology. It could be something like the Mayan calendar. Everybody needs to switch to the Mayan calendar now, or the world is doomed. You can see how this, this meme of planetary crisis and world in crisis or culture in crisis always precedes or is included with the manifesto or the dogma of the New Age. Otherwise, none of it means anything. None of it makes any sense. If you remove the myth that the world is in crisis, and you can make an argument that the world is in crisis, but I will make the counter-argument that you could say that at any time in history, and it would still be true. The world is in crisis. Even if we accept that the world is in crisis, the solutions that the New Age offer are not solutions. They are personal remedies to make you, as a human being, feel less anxious about the world being in crisis. And that's a flip of the script. Nobody tells you that. The New Age doesn't fix anything. It doesn't offer any solutions. It doesn't heal anything. It just makes the people who adopt those disciplines or those beliefs feel special and feel better about themselves. And maybe that is a kind of magic. And maybe that could be put to useful effect somewhere but not when you're teaching people to be delusional. And this is where the crossover with psychedelics comes in, is that on their face, most of the values and beliefs of the New Age are purely ridiculous. They're purely 
ridiculous. I mean, all of it, the astral travel, the past life regression, the transcendence, uh, the belief that the earth is in crisis and we're all spiritual warriors, they're all ridiculous. And you have to be a little bit insane to believe them. I think Marsha Moore was a little bit insane. And that's why she was pulled so headlong into these beliefs. Now, on the flip side of that, psychedelics make you a little insane. I mean, they do have a residual effect on your brain that opens you up to new ideas and some kind of magical thinking, kind of delusional thinking. So people who take psychedelics, I think, are maybe more susceptible to being implanted with these ideas and letting them take root, and not only take root, but maybe even take over their belief structures. I've had people ask me, James, why do you care what people believe, as I said? And I said, I don't really care what people believe. I just don't like the disinformation. Why? Because the disinformation is dangerous. And if you don't know what you're doing, you may think that you're on the cusp of a spiritual breakthrough and that you're touching higher consciousness and you're healing the earth. But really what you're doing is freezing to death up in a tree while everybody else in the world wonders where the hell you went. <laughs> <laughs>